He stood beneath the cross and he saw the Christ hanging there. He maybe even saw it with his own eyes. He maybe heard Jesus say this with his own ears, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He was there that day. He maybe even witnessed this too, the tearing of the temple curtain as his former belief system was proven utterly worthless. He felt the earthquake that day. He maybe saw those people rise from the dead and all of those things came together to teach Nicodemus something. To teach him this truth. That his God is not a God who names people and shames people. His is a God who came to rename people with his own perfect name and to take their shames on himself. The sermon that you're about to hear is from Pastor Paul Borman at Hope Lutheran Church, located in Tigard, Oregon. For more information and for more content, go to hopeintiger.com. Today I want you to notice as we take a look at Nicodemus. I'm going to read a section from John chapter 3 here, but I also want you to be aware that we're going to be looking at other selected parts of the book of John as well. But here is the big chunk that we're going to be looking at today. It's from John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. John writes, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I thank you for giving us this person in Nicodemus who shows us so much about ourselves. But Lord, I I give you thanks even more today for giving us the account of Nicodemus to show us so much more about yourself. 
Thank you for sending your son to forgive and heal these people in the story and also to heal us. Amen. There is something incredibly powerful about realizing the value of Jesus. Realizing the treasure that it is that you hold as a Christian. Realizing how truly good it is and realizing what you wouldn't give just to hold on to that faith. That's something that I'm hoping to illustrate in this sermon today. The value of Jesus, the value of what makes you who you are as a Christian, as someone who has been saved and washed clean from sin by Jesus. I'm going to work hard on that today because I think that illustrating the value of Jesus was also a huge priority for John. And I think this is a reason that Nicodemus becomes a kind of case study for John. We'll start at the beginning here. John actually gives us a really thorough, full description of Nicodemus. We know from John that Nicodemus was a guy who had everything. He was a Pharisee. He had boatloads of knowledge. He's the kind of guy who can sit down and communicate all day long about rules and laws and all the things that the Old Testament had to say. He was also a ruler. We know that. And so our best guess is that he also sat on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Pharisees. Nicodemus is a top guy. He has the things that most people would give a lot to have for themselves. He's got influence. He's got power. He has money-making potential. He has the world on a string. And because of that, he became the perfect person for John's case study. The perfect way that John saw to minister to us. And I keep saying that John, that Nicodemus is a case study for John, and I've got two reasons why I keep saying that. The first one is this. Did you know this about Nicodemus, that, that he is only mentioned in John? He's not mentioned in Matthew or Mark or Luke, and it's not like these Gospels are missing anything either. They record his miracles, his death and his resurrection, but they don't, they don't talk about Nicodemus even once. And why not? You know, it's because John is writing at a different time and for a different purpose. I've mentioned this before, that the gospel is written many, many years after the other gospels. John is an older guy who has the benefit of a different vantage point and and of time and of experience on his side. And so what he sees is Christianity developing and growing. And he sees a unique way that the story of Nicodemus can minister to the spiritual struggles that the growing Christians of his time were facing. In other words, John was seeing that we need the history of Nicodemus. He saw this for us, that we need to be both confronted with it and we need to be comforted by it. And here's another reason why I think that we can look at this like a case study. It's because not only does Nicodemus come up only in John's gospel, but he pops up in John's gospel three different times. It's not just here. John checks in on Nicodemus at the beginning of his book, in the middle of it, and at the end. Today's reading is the first of the three times that Nicodemus gets named. He starts off by introducing us to Nicodemus. This is in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. The second time we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. There in verse 50, John says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked. 
So you get the same name and the circumstances again. And then we track up all the way after Jesus had died to John chapter 19, where we see Nicodemus again, and we find this, where John writes that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Now there's something in common with each of John's check-ins. Did you catch what it was? Each time, John reminds us that Nicodemus had visited Jesus earlier, and he even reminds us that he had gone at night. Now, you tell me, why does John do that? Why does he keep bringing that up? Is it because he's vindictive? Is he the kind of writer that won't let Nicodemus live down his moment of cowardice? Is that it? I think we all understand that's not what he's doing. So what is he doing? What I've been pointing forward to so far in the sermon and what I'll be pointing back to throughout the rest of it is is I think that what John is doing is he's showcasing Nicodemus. He's giving us the focal point of his case study, his thesis statement on Nicodemus. He's showing us that Nicodemus was a gem of spiritual growth, an absolute gem. With each check-in, John is, is pointing us there and he's saying, this is where this guy started. Now compare that to where this guy is, because he's not the same man that you meet in chapter 3. I mean, let's track this together. The first time that we see Nicodemus in chapter 3, he comes to Jesus at night, and it's in secret. It's under the cover of darkness. Why is it so? This one's a little bit easier. We've maybe heard of this one before. It's because he was full of doubt. No, he didn't know in any way what was right. He was absolutely just grappling for truth. Nicodemus did not yet know the value of Jesus, and so he was doing all of this mental math in his head, weighing out the risk and weighing out the reward of following Jesus. The second time we meet him is at the end of John chapter 7, and we see that, that he is growing just a little bit. The situation there is that his fellow rulers are all upset. You know, Jesus' teaching is gaining some traction, and the Pharisees can feel their power slipping, and in the moment, they're angry at the temple guards for not arresting Jesus on the spot. And what Nicodemus does in this moment is he takes a small step towards Jesus, and he asks a question in front of all of his peers. He asks this question, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him? to find out what he's doing? I mean, you read this and you're a little bit proud of him in that moment because you can see that Nicodemus is growing. You can see that he's come a long ways. He's willing to ask a tough question even though he's not quite willing to make the direct statement about Jesus. Not quite yet willing to take the full risk of the belief. He's still afraid. He still doesn't know the true value of Jesus for his life, and he's still weighing the risk and the reward, and there are tragic consequences of this. The consequences come because Nicodemus sat on the top ruling council. It's a kind of cruel irony here. Because this is the council that Nicodemus was valuing in his heart over his faith in his Savior Jesus, and this is the council that voted to condemn Jesus to death. And we know from the other gospel writers that it wasn't a unanimous vote. Nicodemus voted that way too. He didn't like it, we know that, but he didn't speak up either. 
He didn't have the boldness in that moment. And because of his silence, he becomes an accomplice in, in deicide. You know, we talk about how homicide is one thing, killing people is one thing, killing God is the ultimate crime, and Nicodemus becomes an accomplice in that. It's only after Jesus' crucifixion that Nicodemus finally changed. He watches all of it play out in front of him. He watches all of the events of Jesus' death happen before his eyes, and he finally gets bold and changes strategy, gets bold about Jesus. And you might make a guess in your head about what drives him to do this. You might guess that it's the guilt that did it. It makes makes sense to think of it that way. Guilt, I think, drives a lot of things in us. Or you might guess that the shame of it drove him to finally get the nerve to break free from his doubts, but that's not what changes anyone, is it? Guilt and shame don't change anyone for the better. It wasn't shame and it wasn't guilt that changed Nicodemus. It was Jesus' resurrection. It was that perfect, sacrificial love that Nicodemus watched with his own eyes playing out. You know, I think that John thought about all of this as he wrote. I think he was watching this play out in Christian lives around him as he sat writing years and years after the events took place. He's, he's thinking about this because he sees that we all have hearts like Nicodemus. We all have an inner Nicodemus that feels sometimes so small about our faith. A part of us that can feel so scared about the resurrection of our peers. That can be so nervous about what people think of us. A part of us that's always doing that mental math, weighing the risk and the reward of putting all of our eggs in Jesus' basket. And so he gives Nicodemus coming to us at night. He knows this about us and so he gives us this guy who was afraid of losing everything who is constantly analyzing his faith, the guy who is hedging and sometimes hiding, the guy who would much rather talk about the weather than about the Savior. You know why John did that? He didn't do it to pile guilt onto us. He did it so that we could be forgiven from the guilt that's already on us. He wrote down this account not to shame us into better obedience, but to inspire us to it. He did it not so that we could get strong enough to face our fears and push past them, but so that we could be rid of them completely. Here's what we simply have to know. This is it. Nicodemus was not changed by the pounding of guilt. He was changed by the pounding of Jesus' nails into his willing hands and feet. And Nicodemus didn't come to grips with his sin and finally make a choice to fix it. He came to grips with Christ's crucifixion, which fixed his sins for him. That's what did it. He stood beneath the cross and he saw the Christ hanging there. He maybe even saw it with his own eyes. He maybe heard Jesus say this with his own ears, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He was there that day. He maybe even witnessed this too, the tearing of the temple curtain as his former belief system was proven utterly worthless. 
He felt the earthquake that day. He maybe saw those people rise from the dead. And all of those things came together to teach Nicodemus something. To teach him this truth. That his God is not a God who names people and shames people. His is a God who came to rename people with his own perfect name and to take their shames on himself. That's what changed Nicodemus. And it set him free. Because now he knew the value that is faith in Jesus. Here's one way I want to apply this today. It's so important to understand this about Christianity. Christianity. This is the glory of Jesus that you cannot find anywhere else on earth. To know this, that Christianity is not the place that you come to get relentlessly pounded until you're finally ready to change. And it's not a place that has its end game in coming to grips with sin by forcing ourselves to see how bad it is. And Christianity doesn't find its ultimate goal in letting people know that if they don't change, they'll lose everything. Christianity means, this is what it means, this is the glory of it, this is the value of Jesus. Christianity means that we know that we have everything in Christ already. Even when we don't change at all, even if we only change a little bit, Christianity is the place to be relentlessly reminded of Jesus. I'm going to give you a peek ahead now into John and into Nicodemus' story. It's an incredible history here. In chapter 9, verse 38 and after, John records Nicodemus going to Pilate with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea to request the body of Jesus. We can see this, that this isn't Nicodemus going to Jesus at night anymore. This was not going to be private. Everyone was going to know. And he knew that. (laughs) And I think he wanted everybody to know that. Maybe that's why Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh. You can't hide that under a big coat. You can see this here. You can see this gem of spiritual growth that Nicodemus has become. You can see a guy here who has wrestled with his faith, wrestled with his belief, and finally believed, finally grown. Because of nothing else than Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness, Nicodemus got big and bold here. That's not the same Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. (laughs) And that's his story. He's this incredible account, this incredible case study of, of spiritual growth. John truly was unique in curating Nicodemus into his book. Why did he do it? Because it confronts us. You know, you read yourself into the story. You see the times when you have been Nicodemus not quite so bold about your faith in Jesus. You can't help but read this story without coming to grips with the fear and the forgiveness, the sin and the grace that is filled in this story. Nicodemus had been set free. And so have you. 
John wants you to know that. And that's why he recorded probably the most famous gospel verse in the whole Bible in John 3.16. You can speak it with me out loud or you can pray it with me in your heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So now what are you going to do with that freedom? I think you can get big and you can get bold about Jesus. (laughs) I think there are conversations to have, relationships to fill with truth, texts to send, phone calls to make, even Facebook statuses to update. Because you have been set free. You can be big and bold about Jesus because his value is that great. Amen.